But for now, I'm going to go ahead and uh, jump in. This is going to be a phenomenally interesting discussion, but I will start with what I always do, which is, hello and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. My name is Brooks. You have a whole bunch of admins here and a lot of other people. And today we are actually going to be continuing our anti-Oedipus discussion in a different direction. Well, on Tuesdays, we are actually going to be restarting our reading of Anti-Oedipus because that is the eternal cycle of life. Life is basically 72 readings of Anti-Oedipus. Um, the reality is we're running into some issues with being able to describe some of these concepts. And I know uh, we've had a lot of debate as we've talked. And if you've been listening to us, you know as well as I that these concepts are not easy. What I wanted to do is start a unique little grouping of conversations, and that's what today is, more of a roundtable. If you're here in the room, please uh, don't hesitate to unmic yourself. Uh, you're on push to talk. All of you should be free to talk. If you're not, uh, please write it in the chat uh, and say so. Um, the way that this is going to go is pretty simple. Uh, we are going to have an open-ended discussion and try to figure out what the fuck a body without organs is. I spent the weekend trying to find every place online where people actually tried to define this and tried to explain this in the way that I think is more approachable. I found one that I like, and we will get to that point. But there is a uh, difficulty because uh, I want to read through one of my favorite Reddit posts uh, about this. Uh, it's not far off from the ongoing meme. Uh, someone explained to lose to me right now. Except this version is, can anybody explain Deleuze's body without organs? The rest of the comments uh, read just like this. I can't pretend that I've read Anti-Oedipus. That's actually the top voted comment, is that. Uh, but from what I've read on the concept of body without organs, it seems analogous to theories made about phantom limb phenomenons. Uh, this is not correct, by the way, just, uh, just dropping that out there. Uh, it's very much not about that. Um, there's a handful of other readings that kind of talk through this, but the difficulty we run into is the best example of it is uh, our friends at Acid Horizon. Uh, Acid Horizon is a podcast that came off of us, highly suggested if you haven't checked it out. Uh, Craig, who runs that, did a half-hour breakdown of what a body without organs is. The difficulty with that is that Body Without Organs is a concept that spans multiple Deleuze and Guattari books and other writings from a lot of other people. And the concept that is used in Anti-Oedipus versus the concept that is in A Thousand Plateaus, I think there is a shift and change over that entire setup. So what we are going to do today is I would like to spend some time talking through the genealogy of the concept of BWO. So this will be a little bit less of a roundtable up front. And I want to shift into us actually trying to get at what it is. I want to keep all of the discussions as much as possible to the concept as it is used in Anti-Oedipus and the genealogy leading to that. I am very aware there is an entire plateau in A Thousand Plateaus called How to Be a Body Without Organs. We are not going to reference that, uh, Roger. <laughs> um we are going to do our best not to talk through anything that is in a thousand plateaus because I think it adds layers of complexity to what is already something that is very, very complex. So to start with, Jack, uh, would you like to talk about our toe and where the idea of the body without organs and the sound, the words body without organs come from? Yeah, I can kick us off. And just to mention, we do have um, some recordings on actually reading the, the text up you're referring to, which is Antonin Artaud's To Have Done With the Judgment of God. It's one of his final works, and actually I believe it's his, I think it was the final work he actually completed. 
But anyways, um, I'll start out by noting that, um, well, I guess I'll just start out with some passages. So uh, in Antiedipus, uh, Deleuze and Guattari talk about the body without organs and Anton and Artaud as discovering the body without organs when he found himself formless. So that's really interesting as I think that's a reference to his texts dealing with peyote in that. But the actual term body without organs, as far as I'm aware, comes from the um, the texts to have done with uh, to have done with the judgment of God. And so this is a complicated text because he goes through a lot here. It is actually a radio play. And if you listen to it, you'll get some of the idea of the body without organs. Um, when, when Deleuze and Guattari talk about the body without organs, responding not with um, words and like the, the normal kind of signs with phonemes, but instead like um, articulating screams and this kind of like this, this different kind of um, enunciation. You'll actually hear that in the play where Arto um, has glossalia or the, these kind of like um, this different kind of language altogether, if it is a language. So um, I'll read a few passages here. Um, let me see here. So this is from the Infinity Land Press um, edition of Our Tilt and Sound, and this translation is Helen Weaver's. So let me see here. Um, here we have Artaud talking about the body and trying to understand the body. So he says, um, this is page 13 for me. In the face of the pressing urgency of a need, the need to abolish the idea, the idea in its myth, and to enthrone in its place the thundering manifestation of the explosive necessity, to dilate the body of my internal night, the internal nothingness of myself, night nothingness of which is explosive affirmation that there is something to make room for my body. And truly really must it be reduced to the stinking gap my body. That I have a body because I have a stinking gas that forms inside me. I do not know, but I do know that space, time, dimension, becoming, future, destiny, being, non being, self, non self are nothing to me. But there is a thing which is something, only one thing, which is something, and which I feel because it wants to get out. The presence of my bodily suffering. So a major theme in this work is the, uh, the role of the body and understanding the body, which as you can see here, he's very, um, the, the narrator is very careful about understanding the body through right the function of an organ in this sense, um, whether it's set, secretion, or simply farting, as you'll say elsewhere. Uh, but in the same sense, also understanding the body through something like self through space, through time, right? He's talking about the body as something kind of distinct here and the body in terms of suffering, which is really important for the theme of cruelty here. So I'll give you one more passage because I don't want to take up too much more time here. But since we're talking about the body without organs, we do need um, what is the, basically the, the, I almost don't want to call it the finale because it seems so cliche, but the ending of the piece um, so let me see here. Okay, so this is where Arto is talking about microbes, um, which are like 
it's like the if you've ever seen like a picture of a fingernail or something like that where it's got all these little cells on it and there's all these like living things it's basically what he's talking about with microbes here um and this is important because he's this is where he's talking about god as well you are raving mr arto you are mad this is the um other character speaking to him i am not raving i am not mad i tell you that they have reinvented microbes in order to impose a new idea of God. They have found a new way to bring out God and to capture him in his microbic noxiousness. This is to nail him through the heart in the place where men love him best, under the guise of unhealthy sexuality, in that sinister appearance of morbid cruelty that he adopts whenever he is pleased to tetanize and madden humanity, as he is doing now. He utilizes the spirit of purity and of a consciousness that has remained candid, like mine to asphyxiate it with all the false appearances that he spreads universally through space. And this is why our Toa Momo can be taken for a person suffering from hallucinations. So just to interrupt real briefly, you can already see he's working out like how, how asphyxiation, right, the esophagus, um, having like a bad brain, so to speak. This is coming to define Arto and his body. So he's asked, what do you mean, Mr. Arto? I mean that we have found the way to put an end to this ape once and for all, and that although nobody believes in God anymore, everybody believes more and more in man. So it is man whom we must now make up our minds to emasculate. So right when he's talking about the death of man, as Foucault would later talk about. How is that? How is that? No matter how one takes you, you are mad, ready for the straitjacket. By placing him for the last time on the autopsy table to remake his anatomy, I say to remake his anatomy. Man is sick because he is badly constructed. We must make up our minds to strip him bare in order to scrape off that animalcule that itches him mortally. God, and with God, his organs. For you can tie me up if you wish, but there is nothing more useless than an organ. When you have made him a body without organs, then you will have delivered him from all his automatic reactions and restored him to his true freedom. Then you will teach him again to dance wrong side out as in the frenzy of dance halls, and the wrong side out will be his real place. And that, that last bit uh, is, is where the term really comes from. It's the term that, as it is cited is the part of the play that is cited in Santi Oedipus in the way that Deleuze and Guattari talking about this, because their philosophy, their purpose of anti-Oedipus is to become, is to, is to create a materialist psychotherapy, uh, psychoanalysis. The idea at the time, and the very prevalent idea, if you're familiar with Lacan or Freud, uh, plays with the uh, unconscious and subconscious and all of these things as a bit more ephemeral, as not materialist in the least. And their argument starts with this idea that actually what if our unconscious is filled with uh, let's call them organs desiring machines little bits partial objects that are constantly connecting and doing things now each of them on their own just like our organs in the real body they don't really do much on their own the blood 
for example, is produced by marrow, but that's fairly useless on its own. Uh, together, we're able to have things that happen. A liver can, uh, you know, process alcohol, which tends to be my New Year's, uh, especially this year. Uh, a, a brain can have thoughts and tells your muscles where to move. Muscles move and they do things. All of these things collectively are the organs. Now, uh, the way that it works with desiring machines inside of your psyche and inside of your body is not drastically different. They are all partial objects. They aren't full objects in and of themselves. They're things that connect, things that do things, things that uh, reach out and try to produce. And inside those connections, production is created. And at any point, anyone wants to stop in and, and correct me on this. I'm trying to be mostly simplistic about this. But the idea is that you are filled with desiring machines. And there's a lot of them. Now, these desiring machines, like your body, have a shape. They're ultimately all in, like mine would be in the shape of Brooks. They're all collected into this Brooks shape. Uh, but where exactly is Brooks in those organs? Well, I'm, I'm not anywhere. I'm all of them together. I'm mostly what they do right now. My brain is trying to tell my, my mouth to say words that make sense in the case of this fucking podcast, which has mostly been basically like having a stroke every Monday. But uh, it's trying to connect and do these things. My, my lips are connected to the mic. The mic is connected to the computer. These desiring machines are all connected. There's a materialist reality to how my body is reacting to this. The same is true of my unconscious, that my unconscious has these connections. Uh, my, my body, uh, my unconscious is, is constantly doing things. There's a machinic quality to the entire thing. With our toe, the question is, what is actually your body then without your organs? Because your organs are in service of something collectively. They produce a thing. And what is that thing? Uh, it's my skin does stuff. But that's not really my body. What is the body that is Brooks? And so the way that they write about it in AO, uh, uh, what would be required is a pure fluid in a free state, flowing without interruption, streaming over the surface of this full body. Desiring machines make us an organism, but at the very heart of this production, within the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized this way, from not having some other sort of organization or, or no organization at all. An incomprehensible, absolutely rigid stasis in the very midst of process as a third stage. No mouth, no tongue, no teeth, no larynx, no esophagus, no belly, no anus. The automata stop dead and set free the unorganized mass they once served to articulate. The full body without organs is the unproductive, the sterile, the unengendered, the unconsumable. Antonarato discovered this one day, finding himself with no shape or form whatsoever, right there where he was at that moment. Uh, this is where they first really introduce the concept. They carry it through quite a bit and there's versions of the full body there is the body without organs the full body the clothed body they also refer to at multiple points so the question is and i'm going to throw this out there let's start with other places this concept may have come from because i think that will help us start to uh, put some things together so uh who would like to dive in first so um a key place where this concept probably arose uh, is uh, in the works of Simondon. And uh, just briefly, uh, Simondon talks about 
the pre-individual and the trans-individual. And, uh, and so the, the pre-individual is like the uh, desiring machines and the trans-individual is like the uh, associates. And, uh, but, but, but those are all both indexed against the individual. And the idea of Simondon is that we have to explain ontogenesis, where the individual comes from, and look at its genesis. Usually that's uh, through transduction, you know, good example, transduction of snowflake. Kent, you're, you're starting to cut out, probably get a little closer to your mic. Um, okay. Well, anyway, the uh, example of transduction is the production of snowflake uh, in a snowstorm. And so, uh, and so the idea is that you have to, um, you have to produce the individual and explain where the individual comes from. And, and so the individual is marked out by the, uh, the surface of the body around the form of the individual. And so, and so the body without organs is thinking about individual, but but the individual is bracketed on either side, pre-individual and the trans. So let me take a crack at uh, another direction, which I think is interesting. Is it? But but before you go, um, you hear me fine. I just changed yeah. my mic, so okay, fine. Great, sorry, Roger. Sorry. Um, so you asked previously where it, uh, whereas the concept has been used also so you know uh anti-oedipus which we're reading right now it happens in a thousand plateau it happens into logic of sense also and francis bacon and uh i think that's mainly it in kafka probably i'm not sure but um so there's different iterations and it really depends on on into the nietzsche book it happens i think also once so it really depends on which book you're going towards the concept. You're going to have slightly different understandings because it's used into different contexts. Uh, it sounds paradoxical. It sounds contradictory. It's just that the usage into uh, different domains is going to be different. So like, let's, let's take all those uh, definitions being more complementary than you know, try to find contradiction between them. Yeah, that's right. The context and concept change with the text. So then, uh, since it is a, a, because Deleuze is basically a, a philosopher of process, a philosopher of becoming, and everything he's talking about is about structures that create that. The, the nature of the body without organs then is part of that process and something that is left behind through the process? Well, there's there's always like two moments. It's like a moment of autopoiesis, if we want. You know, it's like a produce, a, a produce producing machine. Uh, it's something that is being produced, but in turn produces back. So you know, as a, and I, I'll let you guys talk over this, but it's it's always let's always try to see the body without organs, or the body, or the organ, or whatever else, always into processual form in, se in, in the sense that it is being produced and it will have effect in the manner it will act back. So if we think about uh, the concepts, but also how the world functions, you know, I will always say assemblages because, you know, I'm, I'm into a different Deleuze, but um, to, to the manner which every thing, because I'm, I'm not using the term object, I'm using the term 
thing because it's more general and it's more ontological, but each things will have effects, but is also produced out of this of the assemblages. So it's always this blurry thing of like being produced and producing back. So, so is it an affect then? Uh, it would be easier to uh, introduce the idea of effects uh, instead of you know uh, mechanical kind of procedure. So I want to quote. Um, there's one that I found. I'm going to post it in the chat. Uh, it's the simplest version of the explanation of the body without organs, and it's from Turnip Trucks. Uh, they call it the body without organs explained to children, which I like. Um, and I'm going to read a bit of it because uh, I want to see if there's uh, something wrong with this because I like the way that they talk about it. Now, uh, your head, arms, legs, your inside and outside, all of you that is surrounded by skin is your body. Everyone has one. In fact, we could all say that all things are really bodies. Animals, hats, trucks, countries, microbes, all have bodies and therefore are bodies. Of course, all bodies are made of other parts, which is made up of various parts of the human body like organs. Like a machine, our bodies, through the organs, produce energy, physical action and reaction, feelings, ideas, concepts, stories, and so on. The heart and the mind are organs that help produce such stuff, and the organs follow scientific laws, like the law that says the mind produces brain activity, the heart produces blood. But here is where the problem arises. Does the mind produce thoughts? Does the heart produce blood? Gilles Deleuze would say that not one organ produces anything. All productions are collectively produced by the entire body, and actually, by more than the body, but a complex of bodies and environments. That complex, that place from where things are produced, is so many plateaus or stratifications constantly becoming simultaneously as they produce. In fact, to take the human body as an example, the body itself produces as much as it is produced by other bodies as it journeys in and out of various plateaus and stratas. In fact, to make such a distinction between what a body does and what is done to it is really impossible, because in the end, all bodies are simultaneously, always already, within a matrix of producing, produced, becoming. Deleuze got this idea from Anton Artaud, who said, when you will have made him a body without organs, you will have delivered him from automatic reactions and restored him to his true freedom. This is where the concept comes from. Deleuze also loved what 17th century philosopher Spinoza said, no one knows what a body can do. Uh, meaning we can do impossible things with bodies if we get rid of the rules that we made as humans to dictate what a body can do, according to other rules we created about what organs can do, then we'd be free to do much more with our bodies. We could do more than kill and hurt and use and eat and borrow bodies, which is basically our rules. In his most famous book, written with his friend Felix Guattari, uh, no, I'm not going to go into Thousand Plateaus. Not going to do it. I'm going to skip that. Uh, the, the earlier section of this, I think, is an excellent breakdown of where the idea or what uh, produces a body without organs. Is that a fair breakdown or is it too much? I would think so. In the sense that there was a comment in chat earlier. Uh, I'm just going to go back to it. And um, it's Memzel. Uh, Mesmel, sorry. Uh, is there a metaphysical difference between an organ versus a body, does the schizophrenic transcend the organ if he visualizes the body as a barrier? It It's interesting, this comment, the way it is formulated, because it, it starts with, like, uh, it asks the question, if the schizophrenic will be able to transcend the body. But it's actually the, the other way around. It's the body, it's like a molecular kind of 
set of desiring machine or line of flight. You know, it's always producing it. Stuff emerges from it. But the rational, the rational discourse that is being put on the body that describe its function, and you know, by organ saying the the finger can do this, and you know, it is composed of this and that. It it's a discourse that we put on the body. So we make an image, like a thought image of it. But more fundamentally, the body is not that. The body is not a discourse that we put on it. The body is just what it is in its composition and on its the way it passes potentials into the actual. So, so the body is not something that is verbal. The body is not words. The body is not ideas. The body is a set of potential action. So it's the other way around. Like uh, the, the body does all this and then the rational thought transcends the body with ideas and concepts. Yeah, and lays it over, right? Yeah, I like what you're getting at because the the further trick here is to get into how the body with the organs functions in the, um, in the three syntheses, which gives you like, I think a clearer distinction between the body and the body without organs. But it has to do with the, the thing that is produced that we're almost not aware we're producing. When we're thinking even about our body or we're producing stuff for it, there is, uh, I, I, when we were having a discussion about this at one point during the readings, I brought up the concept of uh, metagame inside of video games. I'm a big Dota 2 player. If anyone here is into League of Legends or Overwatch or any of those things, the idea of a metagame, which is the way a game is meant to be played just because of how the game sort of works out in large scale sets of simulations and we've agreed, oh, this hero is best at this point or use this ability during this, the metagame as people talk about it is, is almost analogous to the way that our desiring machines, if you think about them as all the different components of a video game, they produce a metagame just sort of by nature of it, the rules, the ways that we have to be, the, the structure that is around us. And it's not something we actively try to produce. No one in a video game uh, sits and tries to create the metagame, but by nature of playing it, by nature of being a part of it, you are producing it. And it is that thing that sits and sort of uh, everyone sort of rates themselves against without really even knowing it. So it's an interesting uh, sort of, it's, a, it's an allegory I tried to use, and I don't know if it's accurate, but I, I still like it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it works. And if, if we forget that people have planned the meta of the game a little bit, you know, system of intent and, you know, but when it comes down, it's just not there. It's, it's something that happens through desire. So desire is replacing intent or any, you know, system uh, kind of thinking. Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that because the meta, so the body without organs in terms of how it codes and decodes, right, in, in terms of that capacity would be affecting the meta, but it would not be the meta. In fact, it would be important to, to make the distinction right here that the meta would be um, something like codes and, and a territory, right? It would be, in this sense, kind of enabled by a body without organs, but it would not be the body without organs. It, it, so the, there's there's a couple layers to this, and this is, again, one of the really great things about and difficult things about Deleuze's writings is he really talks about breaking stuff down and talking about the things we almost implicitly know uh, but aren't aware of. It's uh, the 
I don't know that I know these things. And that's much where the BWO sort of sits when we talk about stuff. I may be aware of a game's meta. The difficulty is there is that thing, which is the BWO, which is actually the concept of meta or the, the fact that there is eternally this meta that is waiting. You cannot get away from it if you're playing within the game. Uh, meta in the video game sense. We're, we're, this is a colloquial term used inside of gaming and uh, amongst the kids, I think they would say. Um, but uh, the, the idea of meta, if I were to point and say these are the, the rules of the meta, that's not the BWO. The BWO is when we're playing the way that we all sort of naturally gravitate towards that meta, just sort of without even thinking about it. It's these, it's this layer of life that exists sort of above us, that we're producing things uh, sort of in line with without being totally aware of it. And that, that layer sort of sits above us. I'm trying to describe it more poetically than philosophically, because one of the, one of the challenges, uh, I'll say one of the reasons I was excited for this talk, and I'm going to continue to be excited, is the, the challenge I've seen is that the vast majority of ways of describing the BWO are done with analytic philosophy in mind or with people who have massive backgrounds in continental philosophy. And so they're like, oh, if you want to understand it, read these 92 books and I'm going to reference them. And that's, uh, that's silly. If, if that's the case, that the only way to understand something uh, that is so important and profound is to read so many books, like this is useless theory that we will never get anywhere with. I actually believe that a lot of Deleuze's work is it is graspable. It's just a matter of being able to convey it and talk about it in ways people can grasp. So I'd love to uh, get to that sort of side of things. So that's why I'm trying to use this meta concept to discuss it, because I think it's more of a uh, thing that people can grasp and play with. So that's fair. Let's. Uh, Bostgird has a great question. Does anyone here, and this is fully open to anyone, not just admins, does anyone have examples of a BWO? And don't say capital. We're not at that level. We're not at the socius yet. We're going to get there. I'm, I promise. Can we talk about pigs already? <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, give, give an example of how a, a BWO works, some real world analogs to the entire thing. I was sit and wait. People, who, people who've joined these talks before are very aware that I'm happy to sit in very awkward silence for people to talk. Well, um, I could start it off with um, a bit of uh, phenomenology. I um, really enjoyed Sartre, and I uh, analyzed um, the chapter of Body Without Organs, um, replacing basically all the definitions I could find uh, the Luzi Quattari gave to it um, with Sartre's ideas. Um, <coughs> Sartre's ideas. And um, yeah, maybe. Uh, some of those are interesting. Let's see where to start. Um, yeah, I, th I think the best way to start is why uh, I, I actually uh, did that. Because um, at page 21 of my book, which is uh, by um, uh, Bloomsbury, so it's a di different edition than most have, but um, page 21 for me um, is uh, referred as, um, <clears throat> well, the question is phrased as for me, it is a question, but it isn't for them. But we must first establish a parallel between the desiring production and social production. And they um, establish this parallel uh, in the sentence below that 
phenomenologically um, dot of um, yeah double point or uh, I don't know we call it in English but um, so they basically say to summarize uh, that if it's confusing to anyone design reproduction and social production phenomenology 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 phenomenologically um, results in um, a side of the body without organs, not the whole body without organs, but it's um, an aspect of it. So that is, of course, uh, well, an, an, a nice advantage to have to at least get an aspect of it. So the first thing um, which um, uh, uh, I came towards was uh, this sentence um, that uh, the there is of course a recording they talk in the book about recording as a definition which is on the surface and they talk about production which is uh, recorded um, not in the same way it is produced so if you take the the two um, concepts of um, let's see um, um, the surface of the recording and the production. The surface of the recording would be in Sartrean terms, bourgeois uh, or for itself, and um, the production would be in Sartrean terms, ensoi uh, or in itself, um, to um, function as um, a phenomenologi phenomenologically um, a way of deducting um, certain aspects with the body uh, uh, without organs um, yeah so I, I got many more notes so maybe um, I talked uh, uh, I, this was my, my, my first one because of course Pursua and Enswa are um, essentially uh, essential um, satirical concepts uh, phenomenological concepts uh, therefore so um, if anyone wants to take it from here, it is fine. Otherwise, I could go on. I got other notes. So, yeah, I don't feel like Brooks as comfortable with silence, but... No, I, I, I very much am. I'm happy to wait for the next person. <laughs> okay. um. Um, yeah, I, I could go on. Uh, let's take another one. Um, uh, so so the, the, the nature of this is we're talking about when a body itself exists, the, the body is essentially controlled. My body, my Brooks. Brooks is controlled by all the things and the connections he's made. At some point, if I were to say, cool, remove all of the organs that make Brooks who he is. Now, who is Brooks and what is Brooks? That concept, yeah. that ineffable difficulty this is what you're talking about. The ineffable difficulty of talking about what Brooks is at that point, that's literally a body without organs, but it's also figuratively what we're talking about in concept, that idea of what makes Brooks at that point. Because if I'm not a slave, as Artaud was talking about, or as uh, AO talks about, if I'm not a slave to uh, the literal definitions that I've created for myself, and I've created most of those in service of my various organs, I need to shit twice a day, I need to eat these three meals, I get low blood sugar if I don't have a snack, I need to have sex, I need to do this, these are the, for me to operate, the, the rules that I have, and all of us have our own version of that. But if all the organs were removed, and I could be a body without organs, or there was a body without organs. What is that thing? And it's almost, a, it exists almost as a negative on top of these things. Roger, please. So 
So, you know, I'll go back into a thousand plateau, but <laughs> I'll give you an example. It's a different understanding, you know, and then we can move from one understanding to another. Uh, on page in English, I think it's 150, uh, the masoch masochist body. It is poorly understood in terms of pain. It is fundamentally a question of the BWO, body without organs. It has its sadist or whore, sew it up, the eyes, anus, urethra, breast, and nose are soon shut. It has itself strung up to, the, to stop the organs from working, flayed as if the organs clung to the skin, sodomized, smothered, to make sure everything is sealed tight. I really just wanted to say sodomized into this chat. But, uh, but that, that's the thing, you know, like it, it takes the body, the masochist body, and it says it's not, it's not a, uh, a question of pain. It's a question of how it connects to the world because it needs a sadist, an external agent to actually act upon the body, to create sensation, to create a, a new sense or a new understanding, a new consciousness of the body. And is this consciousness that is revealing of the real or uh, this particular modality of existence of the body? And then, you know, with all the lists that they give, it shuts down the organ from a rational perspective. It, it, it takes the discourse away because it reconfigures things. And this reconfiguration of of the different things within the body is producing a different type of effect. So the body without organ is this experience that enables a different state into the, the, the particular or the personal body. Couple comments there. Um, for the Sartre and Ben, the only thing I need, I think I need to say there is that like, we want to be careful too though, because Deleuze and Guadari are using phenomenology there to make it parallel, but they're not trying to be, they're not trying to push this back into consciousness, which for Sartre, at least based on the transcendence of the ego, I think is the essay. For no, Sartre, I, I completely disagree. Uh, Sartre um, like pulled away, uh, away from that in his book, which just came out pre before Anti-Oedipus in um, a dialectical, uh, dialect, um, critique of dialectical, of dialectical reason. reason, exactly. Um, he um, makes uh, basically the bridge. There is also a, a method of um, in search of a method in between that, and uh, mainly in, in search of a method. Um, he makes a bridge between um, basically the, the. He explains how, like his uh, initial work of being a nothingness, can be explained as uh, the socius and uh, not uh, the con uh, a consciousness, and then he. Uh, develops that uh, concept, of course, in a critique of dialectical reason. So I do agree, like, uh, if you only read being a nothingness, of course, um, then it's um, indeed uh, uh, not uh, possible to make that jump. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. But the, it, okay, so I think we're good there. The main thing I'm trying to get at is that they're they're trying to stick with the unconscious here. Um, and typically phenomenology goes toward consciousness, or at least in early Sartre. Mainly I have the transcendence of the ego in mind there. Um, so it's very early work. Mm -hmm. um, 
that being said, I think if we, I think we, to take Roger's point and move further into Antiedipus, I think we want to consider what a body without organs does and its function, which will help us understand um, how it works and what it does, right? Which will give us an idea of what it is in that sense. So right, the body without organs, the producing product identity, desiring machines make us an organism, but at the very heart of this production, with the very production of this production, the body suffers from being organized in this way, from not having some other sort of organization or no organization at all. The automata stop, stop dead and set free the unorganized mass they once served to articulate. Sorry, the body without organs here is in distinction with the um, with desired machines, right? The body without organs being the unorganized mass uh, something undifferentiated in this sense, that um, that an undifferentiated mass is what they call it, which sound, stands in contrast to desiring machines creating the actual connections during the first synthesis, right? So like this would be where the organs come together to form an organization, which is enabled by the body of the organs, right? Because they say, um, uh, let me see here, they have a part about the the assemblage stopping dead and no longer serving to articulate the um, uh, the, the undifferentiated mass it serves. So they're talking about it in terms of the body without organs as this kind of engine for um, the machinic process. But the big thing I'm getting at here is that the body without organs exists in relation to the desired machines, particularly through the first synthesis where it's inserted into production. And in this sense, in relation to the socius. And I have a quote for that. This is from page 33. On the contrary, the body without organs is the ultimate residuum of a deterritorialized socius. I know we don't want to go too deep into the socius here, but just to understand kind of where it's coming from, right? Uh, the prime function incumbent upon the socius has always been to codify the flows of desire, to inscribe them, to record them, to see to it that no flows exist, that it is not properly dammed up, channeled, regulated. The body without organs is important here because as these connections are happening in the synthesis um, at that molecular level, the body without organs in this sense as its kind of engine, if you like, or at least as kind of like a that connect uh, that which connects the, the assemblage and production to anti-production um, is critical here because in this sense, the body without organs can actually kind of contrast with the uh, associates in the sense codification and territorialization there's an opportunity for change here or, or for what the the losing watery call a breakthrough can this can, is in terms I, of the two functions interject for, for a second because uh, this made me think very much about the line um i don't know if it's before or later what you just uh, it was a quote right what you gave us Yes, the first series of things I was talking about were a series of quotes from sections one and two, and then I read a quote from page 33. That's correct. Uh, yeah, so it made me think about uh, another quote, which then was later on, I presume, because I think we have different versions of the book, but um, it's, it's for me, it's page 24 um, uh, below when it starts. Uh, he starts with, but why call this new form of energy divine? Well, why label it Numen, that's important, Numen, in view of all the ambiguities caused by a problem of the unconscious. 
that is only apparently religious. So he calls the unconscious religious. And of course, religion is um, well very uh, obfuscated, I suppose. So he is still um, uh, making like um, uh, a socius of ba- basically out of the uh, phenomenal aspects of uh, his um, his um, work, uh, he's building associates out of it by uh, placing it uh, against uh, God. And he does this by basically having this libido, this, um, this how, how this called, transformational energy. Um, it's more Jungian, I suppose, um, in this regard, but I'm not really a Jungian, so I'll, I'll, I just refer to it as libido. But um, in, he labels that a numen. And numen, to me, I don't know if I'm right about that. So uh, I, I have actually have a question for you, uh, Helsa Poppin, um, that it to me seems like basically the conclusion of the um, Sartarian um, um, uh, definition of noumena and the Hegelian um, noesis. I think Newman is like an in-between of those two. So the uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but can you entertain that idea for me for a second, maybe? I can do that briefly, and I'll turn it over then to Ken, who actually is a Jungian, or at least is very is much more familiar with Jung than I am. And I so, have to say, is actually going to be hosting an upcoming Jungian talk if anyone wants to join. Just, just saying. Continue, Jack. Plug in the plug. Now, um, so I'm not too well versed on Sartre and Hegel there. What what I can say is that um, the the numinous and Jung I know is very critical for him because in his essay on religion he does talk about if I remember correctly, religion in terms of the numinous, right? So the experience of something, um, in this case, we might say undifferentiable, but something that's um, at least doesn't seem to be passing into consciousness, uh, something unconscious in that sense. So the critical move I see Deleuze and Guadri making here is to say libidinal energy during these three parts of production, right? Uh, production, recording, and... Um, uh, consumptum consummation, right? Development mm-hmm. of territorialities and therefore subjectivity. Um, okay. In that second process, libidinal energy becomes uh, noumenal. Mm-hmm. It's still libidinal energy in that sense. It's just they're kind of differentiating it here to talk about it more easily. Yeah, but I think like um, Hegel and Sartre came upon the, the same problem, I suppose. Um, and uh, they um, um, uh, did it call it Newman, which is of course uh, a better solution. I I uh, I think, um, but it's still uh, valuable uh, to 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 view it as a combination of Nuasis and Numena, because if you uh, I think basically what they are saying here to to me it seems who, who knows Sartre and Hegel to basically say all right take everything after they developed. Um, after the Nuasis they developed and after the Lumina they developed and uh, you, you got uh, our concept. To me, it's like an, um, yeah, as basically a landmark or how do you say that? Uh, so, so something like you can track back, you know, um, it's like uh, uh, an, um, yeah, landmark, I think. I'm not sure my English is lacking, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
well, maybe I interjected too much uh, already. So um, I I hope that makes sense. But I could, could look at it's basically an um, epistemological uh, thing. Epistemological thing that the Nuasis is very epistemological to Sartre and uh, sorry, Nuasis is very epistemological to Hegel of uh, Hegel to Herschel. Nuasis is very epistemological to Herschel. Numera is very epistemological to Sartre. So um, I think that the what what it to conclude, I think it is basically that the the the, the question um, of where does it come from was for both authors the same. And they, of course, uh, Herschel uh, made it uh, consciousness, I suppose. But I wouldn't rule it out as uh, because it is consciousness. Because Sartre later proposed that consciousness could also be put, and they, uh, they already explained that as the capitalists' uh, schizophrenia uh, before in the chapter. But uh, they proposed that basically the surroundings the um yeah the, the socials but besides that the objects um could also function um as uh, as different concepts of consciousness uh, which he called uh, praxis so he, he basically left uh, consciousness behind and started to call it praxis basically um because it didn't fit his uh, viewpoint anymore so that's um i think that in the end if you take like the uh, the modern phenomenology which which isn't very apparent i think in in modern in in philosophy these days but like the end of phenomenology was like sartre um contribute contributing of basically sacrificing it maybe giving it like everything they they uh, made consciousness basically giving it to the world in uh, almost a literal sense that the the surroundings etc could be viewed as for itself as in itself as um yeah of course you have like um ecstasy which is the audible triangle to me because ecstasy it to to start um well let's talk about that if you if you can convince me that uh, the the audible triangle differs from the uh, satirian um definition of ecstasy i might reconsider all i just said but to me the oodipal triangle well is of course uh, mommy, uh, daddy mommy me of uh, me mommy daddy and um well um uh, ecstasy to start was um that which is uh, uh being being as it is being as it is not and being is not as it is. That is basically um, ecstasy to start. And does, does that really differ from the Oedipal Triangle? One thing I think we're kind of drifting away from, uh, a point they make in Anti-Oedipus is the body without organs as a recording surface. Uh, this is a quote from Brian Misumi's book on Anti-Oedipus. Uh, he's going to say, uh, it is a body as pure potential, pure virtuality, its phase space. The body without organs is a subset of the body's plane of consistency. Uh, I don't 
necessarily think that's a super universal uh, interpretation, but to go on, he'll say the attractor segment uh, containing the repertory of potential states among which it effectively chooses. An organ corresponds to each point on that segment. Uh, so, like, the disjunctive synthesis as the body without organs falls back down upon desiring production, it creates like the spread like the, of the wreckage of the system along the surface of the body without organs. And that creates sort of the sort of pseudo Cartesian coordinates that things kind of constituate themselves around. And then as we're moving into stuff about like joy and ecstasy, I think we're moving away from the body without organs as part of the process of desiring production. Yeah, I think the move here would be to move back to the body of organs, then we would say, because I think you're right about the second synthesis, it's very important here, because it, it would give us, I think, the contrast of the epistemological point um, in juxtaposition with the semiotics, which is to say, the body without organs is working with codification here, sorry, signification in, in a sense, but also functionality, which is really important for what's going to happen when it falls back upon production. And in that sense, how we get to the third synthesis, which is where uh, consummation and consumption or subjectivity takes place. But I think well, the triad had a point here. But the the uh, the sh short uh, addition, they basically are saying that desiring productions, because they contain the Udipal triangle, are not uh, consistent consisting inside the body without organs. So uh, the Udipal triangle is, of course, floating in the... Um, um, recording machine, like you just said, also. Eh, it might be more difficult than that because the they're, they've basically moved out of the whole Oedipal triangle in this book, right? That's a very simple way. But they say the uh, Oedipus works as kind of a, re a repressing representation. So there's not always an, an Oedipal triangle present. Mm -hmm. That's all. Uh, could I just interject here? Um, mm -hmm. I, I think... Brooks actually gave the best straight-up explanation of what the body without organs is so far, when he kind of just straight-up said, you know, you take the person, you know, the body or whatever, and then we get rid of everything that makes that person that person, and what we have left is the body without organs. And I think that's definitely 100%. That is what the body without organs is. And in the earlier text, he, he posted about, you know, an attempt to simply explain the body without organs. They talk about these other bodies, like nations, and not just my body, but you know that everything is a body. And I think it's important to realize this as well. It is that something like the my nationality is an organ that makes up my body, right? My connection to my mother is an organ, in a sense, that makes up my body. So what is the body without organs? It's when we burn away all of these connections, right? So, and that's when the statement, you know, I am my mother, I am my father comes in because we've dissolved all these connections on the periphery. We've become like the body without organs. And I think a, a typical way that somebody, and almost a psychoanalytic way that somebody might look at an identity is to look within themselves, right? Let's say we call it an egg like they do in, in Anti-Oedipus. Some people, they look within the egg to find the yolk, like the, the shell of the egg pushes inwards to their identity, and their identity is found in the middle. 
but the body without organs, the egg is all shell, and it pushes out and makes connections that form your identity instead. Uh, and this is where the, the, the recording comes in, because, I mean, if we just take away everything that makes something a thing, then it's just nothing now, right? So what is the difference between just not describing anything and the body without organs is the recording that takes place on the shell of the, of the body without organs, on the shell of the egg is that although these connections aren't real to things like my nationality, they are recorded on the body without organs almost as like an illusion. There are like these illusionary chains that connect the body without organs to the organs that are on the outside, like medallions, I think they call it in, in a 1.2 of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, they they I, do, I, and I think that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, maybe I... I, I, just, I just, like the the is it just the um, the organs are those like hyperconscious? Aren't you just hyperconscious of your organs? So if we say that the body without organs isn't consciousness, how 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 like my organs are hyperconsciousness? I I, I presume from uh, any neurologist's uh, point of view, and of course they say, well, don't think about the neurologist, but yeah, let's let's do for a little bit. You know, they are hyperconscious, so. Um, it's not that. It's not so much about the the organs. For me, you know, it's it's um, it's it's way more abstract. So um, yeah, that's the road I'm taking. <laughs> so I want to continue off. One of the things I was talking about. Someone asked about a cyberpunk character. I would like to talk about the major from Ghost in the Shell. Uh, if you've ever watched anything that's cyberpunk, one of the ideas, and even now in current culture, is the idea of being able to sort of leave this mortal coil, this sheath behind, and move into the digital space and be be in there. At that point, you'd have eliminated your body with your body and your organs. So, what would you be? My argument would be what Deleuze is. What Deleuze, I think, his argument would be is, well, yeah, you're leaving behind your literal organs but you have like a million more organs that are your desiring machines. You think that the moment like, oh, I download myself and now I'm on the net. Are you going to, for example, like I've always wanted a cigarette because I'm an ex-smoker. Am I going to still have that desire? Yeah, probably even if I've given up my body and I've jumped into cyberspace. Uh, the major and the entire world of like Ghost in the Shell and a handful of cyberpunks are really about exploring this. And the idea that if we dive in, we still have organs, they're desiring machines. And then to lose this point is that we have all of these desiring machines and like our body is produced by our literal, our literal body is produced by our organs, uh, sort of as a collective, as a sort of collective production, a virtual production of all of that, our desiring machines produce a body as well. That body is a body with organs, a full body. And if we want to talk about what happens when we take away our desiring machines as well, now what is left? What is still the body that is there, the thing that is there? And there is still one there because you're still doing stuff for a thing or with rules or within a certain setup. You're not suddenly going to become God, totally omnipotent without any, any borders. So the body of without organs is kind of always there. Yeah. And uh, so what web parrot, uh, web, webcam parrot said earlier. And, you know, if I want to bring it back to the academic uh, uh, reality of, you know, the current debates, um, in anthropology, there's something called the ontological turn. 
and you know it's it it comes and it stems and it's a result of you know uh, certain stances such as Marilyn Strathern's, but also older philosophers, uh, older anthropologists that were saying, you know, the world is relational. So the ontology of the world is not a bunch of identity with you know their own uh, their own sense, but it's the sense must be found within the relation between those entities whether it be person, objects, or whatever else. So Deleuze has been a great influence on that uh, current of thought, and he's being used profusely right now. And it's, you know, it's a, he just arrived within the discipline. But that, that's, that's how we are changing our view of the world into attributing identities to individual entities and saying how their, their identity is relational. It's, it's between things, you know, I am what I am because I'm in connection with the world, but also with my internal organs. And it's, it's, it's a, to think, to understand what Deleuze is saying is to ontologically change the way we think about reality, to move from particular object to transitional object in the sense that they're always relational in connection with one another. And that's what makes them what they are. Okay, so I want to say something about the egg, because uh, we've talked about this before, and Webcam Parrot just reiterated something that I actually disagree with really hard, uh, and that is that the egg image is about the surface, the shell of the egg. Like, if we look at the egg as a surface, we have to, like, it's a three-dimensional surface. Uh, Can I clarify? Because I yeah. only use that analogy to describe how I think most people view their identity, not how D and G are describing it. Okay, yeah, okay, uh, but but I think it's a really important point. Uh, the egg is uh, the, the they bring up the egg image in in relation to the zones of intensity, and um, through which the synthesis of consummation uh, produces uh, subjectivity, and. That that's where where it is is literally an egg, right? You have an egg that has zones of intensity that that um, preform, like like uh, zones where certain organs in the organism that develops inside the egg will come from, and these these zones of intensities that populate the body without organs are exactly what the other two synthesis produce earlier. Uh, so that the third synthesis consumes it. And I think Triad actually wants to say something about the two earlier synthesis or not. Yeah, um, I don't know if this is fitting in this uh, part here, but you you mentioned a, a part there uh, with the religious aspect and it reminded me of some text passages there. And to, to wrap this up a little bit and don't throw with quotes around me, um, in my understanding, especially in anti-Oedipus, the body without organs is um, not to be seen uh, as, as merely um, a concept that is contrary to, to a body. It's more like a force. Um, it's characterized like a force of repulsion and the desiring machines as a form of love or of attraction. So um, 
there's a necessary connection when we think um, the body without organs in contrast or in this complementary nature to desiring, uh, desiring machines, either in an ontological or in an epistemo epistemological way. Because um, we can maybe draw the analogy to systems and their surroundings or an organism and their umwelt, or, for example, uh, a spider and, um, and its web. So the spider consists of so many different uh, circuits in a cybernetic sense of uh, different desiring machines that produce some sort of order all the time, have different of operations, uh, different functionality. And still one can argue if the web is part of uh, this complex or this nexus of desiring machines, but also it's uh, already the part of this concrete body without organs of the spider and of this whole ecological system. Uh, as well as is uh, the specific weather at this time, or maybe for a person that uh, sees something in an epistemological sense. Um, so there's always a shifting form of the body without organs as something that is outside, not yet codified in a sense, and that takes back all the time from the different desiring machines, that takes back different forms of this specific order into its uncodified sense or maybe one can all, um, also say that different um, forms of desiring machines um, this would be a hypothesis of mine could also be the body without organs for another desiring machine for another subject like Brooks said uh, in the sense everything we strap away from the subject or the individual is a body without organs in is it's pure thisness in its uh, hecticity, it's ongoing, uh, what they describe in one point. Um, so, yeah, if this makes any sense. No, that was great. Thank you. That was excellent. Um, all right. I'm going to start. I know we have a bunch of people who want to talk. Uh, I'm going to start jumping around. If you want to say something, please, uh, we're going to do it this way. Uh, give me a thumbs up in the chat. Uh, uh, right there, just uh, thumbs up, Brooks. I just said thumbs up. If you want to chat, I'm going to call on you next. Uh, we're going to start with Misha, though. Oh, well, you're the first to thumbs up, so that works. Misha, uh, you had a comment about Cyberpunk and Ghost in the Shell. If your mic is working. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, get it working. Give me another thumbs up, and I'm going to grab the next person. We're going to skip uh, Joe Windigo right now for just a moment. Not that I don't love you. I do. Uh, we'll do with uh, webcam parent. We'll jump into you. Oh, okay. Uh, I just wanted to mention that it seems like we will, to some extent, we might almost be misconflating the body with our organs as something that produces, because obviously it is anti-production itself. It doesn't actually produce anything. Uh, it just creates connections to things. And these connections are almost not real as well. Again, with like this description at the end of, of 1.2, um, when they talk about the miraculating organs, right? The organs seemingly come out of nowhere to appear, to, to connect to the body of their organs when it's needed, like Judge, Judge Schreiber suddenly regrowing his stomach when he needs to eat. Um, and that's what the recording on the surface of the body with their organs is supposed to be, is is the idea that it doesn't actually produce. It's just connected to produ producing things. And it's neither is it produced. 
so hmm, I'm going to ask because so my understanding in general is that yes, I will say the body without organs is a non-productive uh, sort of uh, zero Kelvin, zero intensity, nothing moves surface. It is uh, the heat death of the universe is the body without organs. Uh, it has to do a lot with death drive being implied here and a few other things. But it's saying it's not something that's produced. I'm hesitant because I'm, I don't want to say necessarily it's directly produced. But my understanding is that as part of the three syntheses are the way we uh, perceive and our desires are produced. There is this body without organs is created as an affect. Is it, it, I would, what I would say is that it seems like it's produced, like all connections to it, though. Well, it's, so it's, an, it's an affect that is created, uh, but not necessarily produced in a machinic or material way. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put some terms here because, you know, I come from a, a different philosophical background. But, you know, hold hold like, on a second, Roger. You need to move the mic close to your mouth. I can barely hear you. Yeah, you're a little quiet. Okay, yeah. about now? Much better. Okay, sorry about this. Uh, so, you know, um, and this could pose a problem for a lot of people when we consider the given, you know, what is being given as ontologically already there, you know, and people will say, oh, you know, is the body without organs something that is atemporal, always there, ontologically given into this, the cosmos or something. But it's, you know, it's it's not being produced, but it serves as a precondition, but the precondition needs to be organized into a certain manner before allowing for inscription also. So that's, that's I think that's where the confusion comes from into, you know, it's anti-production, but also takes a place within production. Don't you think uh, yeah. that could if be I a good uh, understanding? Yeah, yeah, I think what you said is perfect, if I could elaborate, that we're not trying to draw at this, like, objective thing that just exists, the body without organs, it doesn't just exist, like, as this pre-everything thing that just is there, like, fundamentally, right? It is, a, a fundamentally, another pattern um, that we're just choosing to look at things with. So in that sense, it is, it is affective, like, it is, in a way... Uh, I hesitate to use the term assemblage because it's also not an assemblage, but, you know, it is this thing we've cut out of the world as well, but it, at the same time, it's anti-production and not truly produced either. I mean, they're pretty clear in anti-Oedipus about where, like, producing a product, a product, a producing product identity. It is this identity that constitutes a third term in the linear series, an enormous undifferentiated object. Everything stops dead for a moment. Everything freezes in place. And then the whole process will begin over again. From a certain point of view, it would be much better if nothing worked, if nothing functioned, nothing being born, escaping the wheel, continual birth and rebirth. No mouth to suck with, no anus to shit through. Will, uh, turn the page. Will the machine run so badly that their component pieces fall to such a point that they return to nothingness and thus allow us to return to nothingness? It would seem, however, that the flows of energy are still too closely connected. The partial object's too organic for this to happen. What would be required... Oh, uh, I don't know where I cut it's, off. It's, it's okay. It's okay. But uh, they're, they're very clear. It, like in section 1.1 that... It, as part of the connective synthesis and the third part of the linear series that the body without organs is an object which is produced by desiring production. I'm going to jump in real quick here. Okay, so 
on page eight of the penguin edition, right? Um, the body without organs is non-productive. Nonetheless, it is produced at a certain place at a certain time in the connective synthesis as the identity of producing and the product. The schizophrenic table is a body without organs. The body without organs is not the proof of an original nothingness, nor is it what remains of a lost totality, which is very much what webcam period I think is getting at. Above all, it is not a projection. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the body itself or with an image of the body. It is the body without an image. This imageless, organless body, the non-productive, exists right there where it is produced in the third stage of the binary linear series. It's perpetually reinserted into the process of production. Okay, so some quick analysis here. It belongs, the body of the organs belongs to the realm of anti-production. It is the non-productive. It's not produced in the sense that subjectivity in that is produced. It's produced, if we go back to the quote I gave from page 30, page 33, on the contrary, the body without organs is the ultimate residuum of a deterritorialized socius. The prime function coming upon the socius has always been to codify the flows of desire, to inscribe them, to record them, to see to it that no flow exists that is not properly dammed up, channeled, regulated. So the body without organs stands in contradistinction here as, um, as a the residuum of a deterritorialized socius. There's a distinction they're drawing here. The critical thing I want to drive at real quick is that um, the body of the organs exists in relation to the connective syntheses, right? And in that sense, affects them. But I don't think it is affect itself. I think it enables affect um, more directly. It's, it's produced in the sense that it's inserted perpetually into production. So this is a little bit of a different form of production because it's not, uh, even though desiring production is enabling this, right? It's the body without organs isn't happening here in the sense that an organ or a partial machine is um, vitalized, emissionized. The body without organs is kind of behind all of this in a sense because it connects production with anti-production. Could I perhaps say my thing about cyberpunk? Please, please, Misha. Um, so that's that's kind of the headspace where I'm in right now, and that's why my question is maybe related to it still. Um, it's okay. And Some it's... of us play terrible games forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the thing is that, um, but it, it's not only related to the game Cyberpunk, of course, but also to the whole idea, as you said, uh, that also also represented in Ghost in the Shell. Um, you sort of uh, countered uh, those entities being body without organs because they still have very clear uh, um, processes of desire and process and that they are process machines but how they are often also represented in these media is as beings that are um, uh, that have all their desires fulfilled because they're interconnected with everything possible to be connected with and therefore lose let's say a more everyday um uh, use of the word desire um, and therefore I'm, I am I still can shake the idea of uh, someone like a, also from the movie um, by Spike Jones, uh, uh, the Scarlett Johansson character um, in, lo, uh, in her um, being sort of almost transcending desire in having all their desires fulfilled in some sort of cyber perfection if you know what I mean um, is, is, is it possible that 
when such a digital virtual being um, becomes a body without organs in the sense that they don't have the machinery of desire anymore because it's all fulfilled already? Well, now we're getting into a really fun theoretical discussion. I was going to bring up uh, the Borg here for a second, but I'll stick to this kind of science fiction. Um, the for, for me, I think when we're talking about the idea of uh, all of our desires being fulfilled and therefore when our desiring machines are all completely firing and working perfectly, do we have a BWO? Uh, I would argue that the case would still be yes. From We're talking about uh, how the the body without organs is is created where it comes from how it's uh, essenced into life whatever word we want to use and i know words are important here but i'm trying to uh, talk about more the idea of the production of it not literal production in the same way desire is produced um, i think we're talking about it as though during the process of the syntheses the three syntheses which operate very similarly to factory floor where you have desire which is energy at the same time as being the production of it uh, think of it as water inside of a water wheel that's pushing, it's powering its own sort of creation and development, and it goes through. That process burns off something, and there becomes this sort of secondary nature to everything that's made inside of it. Even if everything is firing on all cylinders, your desiring machines are all connecting, and it's great. They would be connecting a shit ton. Your BWO would actually, in my understanding of the concept, we would actually produce some kind of new extraordinary BWO in the process because we're talking about basically desiring machines firing off constantly uh, as they are now, but even to a more extreme accelerated angle, because it, again, it's, it's the process of when I desire, how I desire, how the desire gets utilized through partial objects that the BWO is created uh, through whatever method we can have that debate. That process isn't something that is ever about it being perfect or imperfect, or there's ever never no naturally satisfying way. The nature of existence is this. And so it's it's about two things. Uh, one is how we get those connections going and how we utilize them, because the BWO does this other thing where it comes back on the desiring machines, like the blob in the movie, the blob, it, it, it kind of surrounds them, shapes them and puts them into places. And it ends up uh, subsuming a great deal of that. Uh, they talk about it actually very similarly to the blob. Where is the, where is the specific line I'm looking? Because it's uh, the, not the line, not God, not really. Um, but it's before that. Uh, it's a body without organs. It's unproductive, unconsumable, serves as a surface for the recording of the entire process of production of desire. Uh, the body without organs. Uh, where is this? Someone needs to know what I'm talking about. There's a line specifically. It's towards the end of the book. The Penguin edition has an awful index. I'm sorry. That's fine. Uh, but the idea is that the, the whole idea of the BWO falls back on the desiring machines. It, desiring machines, by their nature, produce it, and it also falls back on them. Is how I have read that. Would a workbench be a body without organs? Mm. Not in and of itself. The desiring machines enable the body without organs to be inserted but they do not produce it itself. The body without organs is coming from, is a deterritorialized socius and the res, the residuum of that deterritorialized socius. 
Yeah. So when we're talking about uh, even what we would call inanimate objects, and this is this gets into actor network theory, uh, which is a bit more of Bruno Latour's style, but is very you know inspired by all of this. We need to think of even my desk here, which has a bunch of objects on it. None of them themselves, in theory, have desiring machines. They don't have a conscious as far as what we humans consider it. But in order for me, who is a ball of desiring machines, constantly looking for connections to utilize the desk, I am constantly connecting to everything. So the desk is not a BWO. However, in the process of me connecting to my microphone, my keyboard, my mouse, my desk, I have bananas over here that I'm looking at at my water. I have a big gigantic widescreen monitor. I'm connecting to a whole bunch of shit. There is, to me, an essence of what the desk is for that I've produced as I've used this desk for the last, really, seven years. The desk is capable of only certain things. I've never, as a simple example, I've never done wood carving on it. I totally could. Absolutely. There's no reason to stop me, but I have another area that I do wood carving on because I just, that would be terrible on this desk. And that, that thing, that meta concept is the BWO falling back on the desiring machines and starting to play. Con so that that, 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 that's super insightful. You Roger, anyone else? Was I just talking bullshit? Like it, it sounded like I actually had a decent idea there. I just want to make sure it's not stupid real quick before you respond. Sorry. Sorry. I like it. Well, so what? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just going to clarify because you cut out at the end. I didn't, I didn't hear you said something about it is uh, a method game of something. And then the, the, the desk, what I look at as my work desk is not my wood desk. It has no, there's no reality behind that. I can do many things on this desk and the desk can be used for many things, but my desiring machines, as I've utilized it, have produced this set of rules or this miasma that exists around the concept of desk. This exists between me and my desk. And this exists between me and my wife, me and my son, me and my family, me and my town, me and my society and me and the capitalist system. It sounded to me like a contained uh, epistem, if that's the right word. Um, okay. So I agree with some of what you're saying. It's not that the desk would have an essence. It's that there's a recording and territoriality there. Um, and I'm not saying you're doing this. I just want to make this clear, too. There is not a center for desiring production. So like Brooks, Brooks is focusing on himself to make this example, and that's okay. But we need to understand that there's not a central thing enabling this. Desiring production flows and enables this. It doesn't need a yes. person. Oh. It doesn't need a center. When I, the apple I, is falling from the tree, there are connections. I will I will jump in and say 100% it wasn't my intention to imply that. Uh, in the Brooks podcasting machine that is Brooks, his desk, the internet, all of you and everything, we are one gigantic ball firing machines. Like there, and there is no middle. Uh, I happen to be a strong personality who's kind of leading this. I am middle of this by any means. So the, the reality is this entire thing is a big ball of desiring machines. But the thing that's fucked up is the desiring machines that we all are, are also connected to all the other podcasts and all the other fucking people who are doing this. And, and the Trumpers who like all of our desiring machines are sort of mushed together. And we, in order to deal with that, break these very uh, sort of large complexities, these molar things uh, into concepts we can deal with. So we have different sort of ranges of magnitude that we talk about. When I'm talking specifically about me on my desk and dealing with it, I'm talking about very much from my perspective. And I think that's what 
uh, a lot of what Deleuze and Guattari's work is, is talking about from the perspective of the individual, uh, the individual, um, about how they deal with these things and how they perceive them, what that process is. And when the, when the desiring machines connect, which is, I'm going to have a banana here in a minute, I will be connecting my hand with the, like a lot of partial objects. There's no real object here, but it's my hand grabs a banana, banana gets peeled. I eat the banana and then banana connects with my lips and goes down on my stomach. I shit it out at some point. All of these things are different levels of desiring machines, different partial objects. And they create in their process, the idea of what eating a banana is supposed to be, how you open it, for example, as a very simple thing is a thing that gets recorded. There's lots of ways to open a banana, but I know the right way. That mentality is body without organs. Yeah, kind of, uh, but without the without the dosting or the narcissism. It's about the codes. Yes, 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 it's about the codes. I know. I'm trying to be very simple about this. God damn it! It's not owned by the body without organs. Yeah, it's just recorded on it. Yes. And, and so, how is ahead, this dif how is this different from? let's say, almost uh, the optimization found in, I already said it earlier in the chat, but the optimization found in, like, Aristotle's becoming, um, like, things that have inherently a certain becoming, but also individuals that have an inherent, like, goal to reach? The term inherent, I would say, is the big distinction. And, and that is the only difference, you would say? I think that's a pretty big difference. If you act like some things are born with like an essential essence, right? They have this inherent thing that they will do or are, uh, doesn't exist to D&G at all, I would say. There's no, things are just assemblages or structures, are, you know, arbitrarily tied together by desiring production within the one substance. There's no like inherent anything. That, and we need to make sure too, there's not like a, the larger telos, so like at least in Aristotle's ethics, right? The idea of eudaimonia as a finality telos that you only get to after you die. Like this isn't here in D&G. So like just once in the terms of like the, these larger satisfactions in that teleological sense, particularly in a, if we're going to take it to the level of like a, a transcendent telos and therefore for a transcendent signifier, seem to be off the table here. This is why I'm critical too of like the Dostin thing. So I'll read this passage real quick and I'll turn over to someone else. Uh, capital is indeed the body without organs of the capitalist, or rather of the capitalist being. This is page 10 of the Penguin. But as such, it is not the only fluid and petrified substance of money. For it will give to the sterility of money the form whereby money produces money. The Marxians out there, right? It produces surplus value just as the body without organs reproduces itself, puts forth shoots, and branches out to the farthest corners of the universe. It makes the machine responsible for producing a relative surplus value while embodying itself in the machine as fits capital. The thing I want to make clear here is surplus value in the sense of a surplus value of code. This is very much about the, um, the semiotical point Right, codification in that sense, and the functionalities. No, no, not semiotical. It's praxis. It's praxis. No, it's, it's, there's definitely a semiological point here. Ah, to me, it isn't, you know. If you, uh, like, um, entertain uh, the, the quote as, um, it is, it is, or maybe uh, I'm reading a bit of a different quote, but um, 
if you take like surplus value as magic, why not make praxis magic, you know, to oppose, uh, to give the Marxists something to oppose with? Because you're leaving the Marxists empty-handed, basically. And I don't, uh, well, I oppose that, I suppose, but by saying give them something to oppose with um, semi, uh, semiotically like praxis, for instance. Because, so if we were to talk about this in terms of the labor surplus and that we're talking about codification enabled by capital, and this is really important because the larger point they make in chapter three is to get into um, surplus value of code, which is particularly important for the first two socius's and, uh, and, and very much so for the third one as well. Uh, are we allowed to talk about capital as an alien BWI now? Yeah, let's actually, I'm going to go ahead and push us uh, forward. I have finished my banana, so I'm able to talk again. Mm -hmm. uh, bananas being one of the more delicious results of uh, colonialism <laughs> and racism. Um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, push us forward to the next step and say that we need to talk about the big one, which is the BWO socius, the one that... Uh, when I was describing and sort of talking about the concept of the way things are recorded from me and my family, me and my desk, me and my town, me and my society, that last one's the kicker because we have a really interesting socius called capital. And uh, the way that our version of capital works is very different than the uh, socius of the past. I'm going to give a quick sort of uh, tiny review. Everyone can tell me if I'm completely wrong, which is fine. Uh, over time, the sort of way societies operates essentially has kind of come into Losing Guattari's version and in Anti-Oedipus, the way they talk about it is kind of three forms. The first is this idea of uh, the everything we do being very much controlled and owned by the earth. Uh, and there's lots of forms of that. But if you think of, as they call it, the primitive, uh, the tribal, the, the indigenous, the way that they deal with everything is very much about uh, the earth has given us, the earth takes away, uh, and my world is very much what is right around me. I work, I do what I can. Uh, the tribe does what it needs and we kind of fill in our needs that way. And that's a setup. Over time, at some point, uh, it switched from earth to kind of God and kind of a God deity. And at some point, some dude went, oh yeah, no, uh, I'm totally descended from that God. Uh, yeah, my name's Steve. I'm his great grandson, the, the earth, and uh, I'm totally in charge now. And we had the despot and suddenly we transferred all of that what was what we're doing things for from the earth to the despot and the despot was unique because how it how it organized things is it placed out a whole bunch of different rules for us it did it in the written word it did it in commands but it governed large areas not just small tribes or even groups of tribes but entire regions and suddenly you'd have uh, an order sent out to an area that could, you know, uh, get marble or rock or concrete or whatever to produce. And then it would be shipped via another tribe to a whole other tribe to build a wall. They describe uh, examples of that in, old, in China, for example, or even Egypt, where entire regions were basically devoted to only one part of production. And the despot was the one in charge of this. And we did all this for the despot. And we owed him and all of that fun stuff in the socius. Uh, the despot isn't literally a conscious person. It, it mm, we will argue about this at some point, but it isn't no, literally. You need to be very careful there. <laughs> it's the idea of the despot, the the god, the god ruler, the monarch. 
whatever it may be, but it's the idea that we have a representative version of God or of the socius that we do all things for. King or country is a good example. Uh, it isn't literally the king, although there is literally a king. So we're talking about, so we talked about the body without organs in terms of the connections, right? Is it yes. intimately related? The despotic socius is very similar in the sense that it's not simply the body of the, the despot. It's not simply Caesar. It is the collectivity that um, we tie to Caesar as though Caesar created it. Very importantly, Caesar did not create it. So this is important too, because again, the paranoiac for Deleuze and Guattari, I don't think has an element of dosting in the Lacanian sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but I'm trying to give a very short version of this because I want to have a discussion about the next one, which is over time, it started switching to where we had capital. And this idea of the way things are or the body without organs we currently live in definitely is not any single person. It actually isn't even the dollars uh, that we call capital. It's the idea of capital and money gods. Uh, the the way that we've switched over time, the new body without organs, the new socius is capital. How capital operates is fascinating. It deserves its own conversation, but and because I can't give a short version of it, but I'm asking the group. Is anyone here who can give what they think is a good sort of breakdown of how capital works as a BWO? I can try my best. Uh, <laughs> it looks a bit esoteric. Um, so, I mean, I think, it's, I think it is okay to straight up talk about money in this aspect, even though it's a little bit of, of, of a, a reduction of what capital is, in that we have this thing, right? We have like this... this whatever you want to say capital is like we have a coin or whatever and let's say there's a business owner and he says hey i'm going to use this capital to um to hire some workers to to produce some stuff right to do some labor so it seems like he you know the capital represents labor value right it is labor value he used it to do labor value but now he gets a bunch of money back from the labor that he produced and so in some way it almost seems like capital made more capital and it's like not directly connected to labor value anymore uh, like it doesn't actually represent labor value it seems like it represents labor value but capital is making more capital here there's like this disconnect and i think that's how it exists as a bwo it's like a quasi um bwo in that there's this seeming idea that it is a, a representation of labor value but in, pra in practical like applications, it doesn't actually seem to work that way. And I suppose I'll uh, elaborate on to say, much like it might seem like there is a certain inherent aspect to things, uh, it's kind of like illusionary in that sense as well. Yeah, so the thing I really like about what you're, you're discussing there is, and this is very critical, is that in that sense, again, like, because capital is engaged in decoding and is engaged in recoding as associates, something like labor surplus is part of the codification. Okay, so Webcam Parrot is absolutely, I think, correct when they're saying that um, it appears that things emanate from the associates, right? Because what the associates does, and I think I read this earlier, is it's in, in, in large part in, in charge of coding, and which is what the first two associates which is what the first two um, sociuses do. 
right? The, the primitive in terms of the earth codes um, what's happening in relation to the earth, right? As though the earth or like a sense of naturalism is there. The despotic will shift here to code in terms of the despotic, right? So this is what they call overcoding. So um, things appear to emanate from Rome. Or actually, a really good example of this is probably Greece, right? What's outside of Greece is understood in terms of uh, Greece, right? So in this sense, you have kind of an intermediary between the um, between the earth and between, um, or actually, you have the earth through um, the, uh, I don't want to call it, say the regime, through the society, but more especially through a kind of um, the despotic here. Right, the Greek Empire, the Greek um, collectivity, however you like. So, in this sense, right, an overcoding occurs because it's natural through Greece. And I'm simplifying a lot here, but um, in this sense, right, that's part of the overcoding process. So, something like Lockean natural rights. Well, they're natural because they seem to come from the earth, but they exist in the social context more directly through the society itself. So something like a social contract enables that naturalism, uh, if you follow me. Capital here steps in in terms of decoding and recoding. So right, they talk about capital in terms of the decoding process and its relationship to the Erstat of recoding, which is very important because the Erstat takes us back to that second socius to the despotic here. Um, so what I'm driving at here in terms of the labor, uh, the surplus value of code here is to say that what, um, what's happening when they're talking about this, as I'm reading Deleuze and Guattari, is that something like labor value um, or surplus value, um, or I guess it'd be surplus labor value, this is part of the codification enabled by capital. And in this sense, it's part of the coding of desires. The more direct point is to say, too, though, that decoding occurs, which I think is part of what webcam parent might have been uh, moving toward. So something like labor value of, um, can actually be a, a recoding can happen here or a shifting of focus, um, which might have happened since Marx. I'm not entirely sure there. I suppose Marxists might disagree with me on that one, but that's fine. We can fight it out in the parking lot later. But the more important point, and this is why it is very important to talk about the semiotics, is because the socius and the body without organs are working with the signifying chains, are working with signification, right? So like even in the third synthesis, they talk about signs and point signs and that, which I know nobody <laughs> enjoys because who wants to talk about semiotics. But in this sense, those codes are very much uh, interwoven with functionality. So like the oral machine being capable of eating, but also of extricating, right, of throwing up. So they, they talk about how it almost looks like an ass machine in that sense. Um, <laughs> sounds like a South Park reference. But anyways, this is important too because it takes you into the third synthesis where the territorialities and the effects and the um, the consumption, right, the territorialities exist in relation to the codes. And in that sense, um, this is all happening in relation to the body without organs um, surface. And we're yeah, going to yeah. get into the, I just want to say, next week we're going to get into the three syntheses. So feel free to come back in a week. We're going to dive deep into them. But go ahead, Roger. Um, oh, I just had one thing to add. I, 
I agree um, with what uh, Jack and Webb Kempera were saying, but just wanted to note that one of the key ways that the capitalist socialist differs from the despotic and quote-unquote primitive socialist is that it functions by um, the axiomatic in place of, in place of uh, coding, um, although it doesn't totally do away with coding and recoding, and in fact relies on it. Um, and the axiomatic is distinguished from coding because it it's concerned with functionality as opposed to meaning. Um, coding has to do with meaning, I think, generally in, in anti-Oedipus. And the axiomatic makes everything functional by making it sort of isomorphic with relation to, only with relation to, the market. Yeah, and uh, just, this, this is good, this is really good, but to go back to what Jeff said earlier, I want to specify... Oh, oh God, Roger, I'm going to stop you. I, I would love to have you talk, but that was just painful. Your your mic is completely broken. I'm so sorry. I feel I, so. I guess possible. I was just trying to say, as Mike, um, I think it's. Well, I think Deleuze and Guattari even directly say in Anti Oedipus section one point two that in the same way that labor value is recorded on the capital is the same way the body the organs records the desiring machines and everything that, that touches it. On it as well, and in, and in that and that's the sense in which they're both anti-production. So, um, is is it working now properly? Sorry about that. Yes, it is my... better. We're, we'll give you the last word, and then I want to have a conversation uh, in a little different direction for the last ten minutes, and then we're going to check out because I have a hard stop at two o'clock. So go ahead, Roger. All right, perfect. Um, capital and capitalism is um, going back to what Jack said. I think we need to make the the difference between capitalism as a social formation or the socius and capital as the form of flows that goes through it and being preconditioned by the relative horizon of capitalism. So there's always this, this, these two things. And, you know, if we take back what Jack says, um, it, it clarifies uh, what has been said, because I think we like tend to confuse both of them. But if we say, if we see capitalism as the infrastructure of that allows capital to flow, uh, we get a better understanding. The infrastructure enabled by capital, because they're very clear that capital exists in the despotic without capitalism having taken place. Because mm -hmm. again, it goes back to like the previous point of like the produced and producing machine. So capitalism becomes a result, but also an enabling production of the flow of capitalism. Yes. All right. So. Um, here's what I want to do. We have a lot of people in this. Uh, I think we've done a, I think we've actually done a decent job of trying to create, I don't want to say shape to this, but to at least, uh, talk around it and point at it properly. Uh, as I like to say, hopefully you've, uh, looked at what we're pointing at and not our finger, uh, look at the moon, not my finger. But, um, I wanted to ask if there are any questions that anyone would like to pose for the group at large that we can try to answer. If anyone is still having significant trouble with things, feel free to ask away. You may type in the chat or you can uh, just dive in. Uh, so feel free. I'm going to say that that's a pretty good success. So that's not bad, actually. That's, I feel like I understand the BWO better, too. I, for me, it's about talking through a lot of these things and trying to give examples and having everyone tell me I'm an idiot, which works really well for me. So. Um, 
but I, I like it. This was great. Thank all of you uh, very much. Um, oh, Boastgird asks, why is this a useful idea? Uh, the, here, why it matters? Why the BWO matters? Is that your question, Boastgird, basically? Um, so it, aside from being super fun to discuss as a concept, one of the things that's really important, uh, and the reason I'm attracted to Deleuzian thinking in general, is I think philosophy for me falls into kind of two things. One that tries to analyze uh, everything as, I don't know how to put it, um, as it is, as though there is some kind of objective way of looking at things, uh, which maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Uh, the way Deleuze and his writings, including Logic of Sense, Difference and Repetition, Anti-Oedipus, and Most of a Thousand Plateaus, really gets at is this idea of the actual process that we go through in life is what is, and we need to break that down. That there's no such thing as, you know, any of us who are. There is no static moment. Uh, that instead life is about the process. And the more we're able to understand the process of how I create my body without organs and the way that my BWO functions or the way the BWO functions at large gives me a chance to understand how to change my process, how to affect it. And there's lots of ways to do that from art to writing to, you know, literal reading to uh, all sorts of things. So the, the idea of being able to understand the process of life is pretty amazing. And I'm very excited to be able to go down that road. So that's, to me, why the BWO is an important concept to be able to grasp more or less. Anyone else? I, I would say that it's very important as an inversion of the psychoanalytic principle as well. It's like, especially like the Lacanian idea that you have this sense of desire that can never be fulfilled within you, like you're constantly trying to fill a hole in yourself. I think it's very um, refreshing and more uh, productive to look at your you know, in this aspect of the body with our organs making uh, pseudo-connections rather than this very pessimistic idea that you could never fulfill your desires. That's a really great way to put it. Anyone else before we, we tap out or uh, give a... Before anyone takes off, I want to say uh, uh, tomorrow uh, we will be continuing our rereading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we will be doing uh, chapter 1.2. Uh, and next week, uh, if you want to prepare, we are going to be going in deep on the three syntheses and how the actual process of desire works inside of Anti-Oedipus and Deleuze's philosophy. This is a really important thing. We probably should have done it before the BWO. I debated. I decided to do it after because it's really dry in comparison. So um, please join next week. And I'm very glad all of you came. This was an amazing session. Thank all of you so very much sit around our server, mess around, write, do some memes. We've got games going. We've got movie night. We've got a ton of other thinkers and writings. Feel free to jump into any of the conversations that you see happening. It's a really open server. We've got some amazing people. I'm very fortunate to be around. So thank all of you very, very, very much. <laughs>